On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about taxes, your taxes, your tax dollars, and labor negotiation. There seem to be strikes or threats of strikes popping up all over the place. What do we do about this? Because eventually it only comes from one pocket and that's us. So do we just pay people whatever they want to be paid or do we take a harder line? We'll talk about that one. Also, uh, interesting uh, Angus Reid poll came out last week. We're talking about it now. It's about religion in politics. Is there a place in 2019 for someone who has a faith to be involved in politics in Canada? Some of the numbers, very, very surprising. We'll talk about that. And then Neil Lumsden joins us to talk sports. Stick around. You'll enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Uh, It's coming up to Christmas time. We're into December now. Seems implausible, but we are into December now. That means we are going to be spending money. You know that. That's how this thing works. Christmas comes along, we spend money. Question is, though, what do we want to be spending our money on? I'm not just talking about gifts. Uh, You've heard that we have, unless some miracle settlement arises in the next few days, we've got a one-day teacher strike this Wednesday, which could extend, could turn into more down the road. Uh, this week we've heard here in Hamilton that negotiations, you were just listening on the news here, that negotiations between HSR drivers and the city are not going well, and a no-board notice has been issued, which could lead to a strike on December the 19th. Just the other day we had a uh, short-lived CP rail strike. Now, it's a private company, but it has significant public impact, so much so that there was talk of back-to-work legislation very quickly had the deal not been reached. And so at a time when cities and provinces and even presumably the federal government are feeling stretched financially and looking for ways maybe to be able to find some savings to keep taxes from getting out of control, maybe even pulling them back, maybe even controlling the deficit a little, if possible, we have these and other labor issues pressing on that with seemingly no answer but to spend more money on salaries. Is that the answer? Well, I wanted to bring in... Jasmine Pickle, who's the Ontario Communications Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, who joins me now. Jasmine, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm, you're welcome, and I appreciate you being here. These, um, those in these unions, and I'm certain probably other people in other unions as well would share this, uh, are saying that, you know, these people, whether it's teachers or whether it's bus drivers or whatever, are simply asking for what people in other similar roles get and what's fair to them, so we should pay them. Is that the answer to these kind of things, is just pay people what they think they're worth and go on from there? Well, that's a bit of a dangerous argument because, uh, I mean, when you talk about education, uh, that's really one of the most important things in society. So I think a lot of people, you know, would never have a cap to that. They'd say, you know, nothing's more important than education. So where should we, you know, just realistically, we only have finite tax resources, so we have to cap it somewhere. And there is a trade-off because the more we pay teachers, uh, the fewer we can afford to have. So, you know, when we talk about smaller class sizes, um, if you want them to get smaller, uh, the way that you can afford teachers is to have fewer of them. So, for example, uh, teachers at the top end of the pay scale in Ontario, and they're amongst the best paid in the country, um, in, in fact, in the world, uh, here in Ontario, uh, the top teacher um, can earn a salary north of $100,000 a year. And in addition to their salary, they can also have pension contributions and benefits worth up to $120,000 when you can combine the three, their salary, the value of the pension contributions and their benefits every year. 
So when top-earning teachers in Ontario are taking home $120,000 a year at the taxpayer's dime, we could have two teachers, uh, you know, entry-level teachers, um, for that same amount of money in the system. So uh, we need to acknowledge that there is a trade-off. The more we pay teachers, the fewer we can afford, because as you mentioned, you know, aptly in your introduction, uh, this province is in a very precarious financial situation. We're going to run a $9 billion deficit this year. So, you know, do we go further into debt? Well, well that's the third option, right? Because you've, you've given two options, and those are two, of, of course, you're correct. But the third option is, no, we'll just raise taxes to pay for these for more money with the same number of teachers. Precisely. And I would ar- caution all of your listeners very strongly against the third option of going further into debt. So uh, for those of them that don't know, Ontario is already the largest subnational debtor on the planet, which is quite an embarrassing title that we should all be worried about. Um, we will pay $13 billion in interest on our debt this year, which, um, you know, that's the fourth largest line item on our budget every year. We spend more on debt interest than we do on colleges and universities. So, you know, we're talking about education. Well, we could double our spending on universities and colleges if, if we didn't have a spending problem in the first place. Um, and at the end of the day, each person in Ontario, including each of the students in those classrooms, are already saddled with almost $25,000 of just their share of provincial debt. Uh, There's more at the federal level as well. Um, But just when we're looking at Ontario's finances, if you divide that per person, uh, you know, each of those students in the classroom carries $25,000 of debt that they're going, you know, it's, it's quite unethical, really. We're passing, we're spending today so that we can pass this debt burden on to the next generation. Um, that they'll probably have to pay in taxes or, you know, in some other form of austerity. So it really is unfair uh, to them. And like I said, you know, I have a lot of teachers in my family, a lot of friends who are teachers that I respect their work immensely, but we just have to be rational in these uh, discussions and, you know, be fair and acknowledge the reality. You know, if taxes are finite, um, and they are, uh, you know, we talk about, um, there was a recent Ipsos poll that came out that found that 48% of Canadians are $200 or less away from financial insolvency at the end of the month, and taxes are the biggest expense for them now already. You spend about, on average, 45% of your household income on taxation. So we can't just increase taxes endlessly. We need to have a rational discussion, and the reality is that teachers are extremely well-paid, um, the average salary is over 86000 a year. Like I said, the top salary is over $100,000. Um, and, and, you know, it's Ontarians already know. We don't need reports. There are many reports that have proven that government employees far out-earn their private sector counterparts. But Ontarians already know that. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are chatting with Jasmine Pickle from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation because there seems to be an awful lot of labor strife, labor labor fights going on right now that are all coming to a head at some point. The HSR here in Hamilton, of course, the teachers that are fighting, the three teachers unions that are uh, looking towards possible strike action. Jasmine, let's leave teachers as a group. Let's just broaden this a little bit to various groups that governments have to deal with, various unions, because it certainly seems that we want, look, I don't think too many people want people not to get their fair share. Problem is, the difficulty is, if a government holds its ground and then one of these groups decides that they're going to go on strike, the public is affected and then people get angry and the government does not, no, no person in politics wants to lose their job or get voted out, so they 
generally give in, and it seems to be an endless cycle that doesn't have an ending. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is really a great recap, but it's been an interesting shift that we've seen in recent years, um, you know, kind of capitulating to a lot of these public sector unions. So today I posted on um, our the Canadian Taxpayers Federation's Facebook page about, uh, you know, back in 1993, Bob Ray, who was an NDP government, um, was a lot more severe, I would say. He imposed a wage freeze. I think maybe a lot of your listeners will remember Ray Day yep. when you know, unpaid forced days off. Um, and that saved taxpayers $2 billion, you know, back then, which is a lot more today. Whereas we have a government today giving, you know, we were only in $100 billion of debt then under Bob Ray. But now uh, under Doug Ford, the debt has increased to $350 billion. Um, and we're giving a 3% raise. Um, and every time we give a 1% raise to these groups, it costs taxpayers $720 million. But every time but every time you don't, Jasmine, to jump in back with the Ray days, that clearly, that decision clearly cost Bob Ray the next election, got him obliterated. And so I think a lot of politicians are also historians and say, you know, if we do that, we're facing the same situation. And so I, I, I mean, I, I think people agree with your concept that says we're further and further in debt, but how do you get around that when taking a hard line and a hard unflinching stand is going to get you voted out, it seems? Well, what was interesting is earlier this year, QP did sign, and that was, as you'll recall, the uh, uh, a public sector union that was um, representing other educational, you know, people working at educational institutions, including janitors and EAs. They signed um, and agreed to the 1% cap of pay increases for the next three years. So uh, those are, you know, workers that are earning far less than than teachers already. So it can be done. Uh, You know, it has been already in the province. That said, I think you raise a really good point. I mean, what's the solution? Well, I would say I'm not very optimistic because... Uh, the teachers' unions are extremely powerful. Um, to give you kind of a visual picture, um, when the government, so this is Bill 124, that, you know, this is the government's bill that they're talking about uh, giving all public, you know, government employees a 1% raise each year for the next three years. When they brought witnesses in front of the committee to talk to the government, they brought in 17, and I was the only one of all of the 17 witnesses representing taxpayers. The other 16 were all public sector unions. So, and all of the, the teachers unions there were represented that day. So admittedly, I don't know, you know, we're outnumbered, that's for sure, on the taxpayer side. But I think it's important for, uh, you know, your listeners to um, contact their their politicians, their MPPs. Um, we have a number of petitions circulating online that if they want to sign, they can. But there is really an issue here where, you know, the average worker in Ontario that's not working for government, um, they're n- they don't have a union to go sit in front of the government and ask for more, you know, ask them to spend less. Um, but all of the public sector unions are very well organized. So we do have quite an imbalance in this province. Um, which is why the Fraser Institute just released their report called The Great Employee Pay Divide in Ontario. Um, And you see, you know, the average government worker for the same type of work has an 11% wage premium uh, over their private sector counterparts. They take more sick days, have, you know, five times more job security, they retire sooner, and they have, you know, uh, far better pensions than, you know, the non-government workers in this province. So we, we do have a problem, and admittedly, 
um, you know, I, I don't know what the solution is. And that's, yeah, and that, that's where the problem is, because, look, a lot of people who may share your view elected Doug Ford and his government in the last election on the idea that they would take a stand against unions. And what we've seen is they'll flex their muscles a little bit, and then as soon as the unions or the public sector pushes back, they seem to capitulate on different issues. And now the public service unions, I believe wholeheartedly, now look and say, look, all we have to do is stand our ground and they're going to back down. So I would encourage all of your listeners, you know, not to be too self-promotional here, but I really don't see any other groups, you know, standing up against the unions. I think Doug Ford, they're running very, very well-funded advertising campaigns. I'm sure your listeners have seen on social media. So I would encourage your listeners to go to our Facebook page, um, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation or taxpayer.com. And we've got a petition up there right now uh, telling, urging the premier to stand up for taxpayers and say no. So just to give your listeners just one last, you know, idea here, um, there are over, so we do believe teachers should be well compensated, but we believe they're very well compensated right now. And there are over 10,500 Ontario teachers currently on the Sunshine List, which is a list of provincial employees who who earn a salary of more than $100,000 a year. So right now, the government has offered them a 3% raise over three years. So all of those teachers, the 10000 earning more than 100000 a year, they're all going to get a $3,000 raise. But their unions are saying, you know, it's technically a pay cut because inflation is going up unless you give them 2% a year. So that means now these six-figure salary teachers are all going to get a $6,000 raise instead of a $3,000 raise. So we think... You know, teachers are important. They should be well compensated. Um, but the reality is that we, you know, taxpayers' pockets are not bottomless. Um, we, we don't have much more money to give. Uh, we're already in a very precarious debt situation right now. Um, you know, we think this is a fair deal, and we, we're calling on the Premier to stand up for taxpayers. Jasmine Pickle from the Taxpayers Federation of Canada, uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Oh, listen, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for the minutes. My pleasure, Scott. And again, you know, I, I, I share what she just said. I don't want teachers or any other person in a public sector union to be hamstrung or poorly paid or paid below what they are worth or whatever. But there is a point at which every dollar that's put in there has to come from somewhere, and that's from the taxpayers. And at some point, we have to say, we're tapping out too much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are still sorting through the fallout of the federal election that was held back in October. Uh, There is still discussion, you've heard it, about Andrew Scheer's future. Elizabeth May has stepped down as leader of the Green Party. They're going to be looking for a new leader. We've barely seen Justin Trudeau since the election, only at the introduction of the new cabinet. Haven't really seen him out much other than that. Anyway, in the midst of all this, so there's all this stuff going on. Angus Reid came out with a new survey last week looking at one of the really unlikely, I think really unlikely spin-offs of this campaign because frankly I don't think too many people expected this to even be part of the campaign yet it became so. Is there a place they were asking, is there a place in Canadian politics in 2019 for candidates with religious views? And not the not by name, not someone who never goes to church or says I'm Catholic but doesn't subscribe or follow any of the tenets of the church. People who actually hold religious views, who actually believe what they're saying. That's who they're asking about. Is there a place in modern politics for those people? And the results, well, let's go through some of these with Ray Pennings. Ray is the co-founder and executive vice president of Cardus, which is a think tank. Uh, Ray, thanks for doing this today. 
You're most welcome. Thanks for uh, having me. Let's go through a few of these that are particularly interesting. There was a number of results that I found quite fascinating about this. And first of all, I did not expect that this was going to be an issue in 2019, certainly not in this election. This sort of came out of the blue that this became such a big issue. But more than half of the Canadians in this survey said that removing religion from public life is a sign of progress in Canada. you agree with that? I don't. Um, and I think it's it's concerning uh, because, you know, freedom of religion, which, by the way, when you asked about the when we asked about the freedom of religion question, it was 62 percent say it makes Canada a better country, uh, which is up 7 percent. Until um, you then want someone to apply it and then, and then their answer seems <laughs> to change. And, and that's where the rubber hits the road, right, in terms of putting this into uh, into practice. But I. I think, you know, when we take a look at the poll as a whole, and there, there are many dimensions in it, and I'm sure we'll, we'll dig into some of them, but you, there, there is a group of people who are very, you know, religion repels them, and they are very hostile to any expression of religion, or even people of religion, even if they make commitments not to touch some of the issues on, on you know, where, where the rubber hits the road, they're, they're, they're totally opposed to them being in public life. And I think that's very concerning because, you know, we, we, we have the Charter of Rights and Freedom, which, you know, talks about freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. Um, we, you know, if we put any other characteristic in and said, you cannot run for office if you are of a particular gender, you're not, you can't run for office if you're of a particular ethnic background. You can't run for office because you're a particular, of a particular religion. I think most people would recognize that as fundamentally problematic. And yet, when you put the results of this poll together, there seems to be almost one in five Canadians who, when it comes to religion, don't see it the same way as the rest. No, one, 22% uh, said a candidate being a person of faith repels them. That was the word they used, repels them. That's more yeah. than just, I'm not really sure about you. That's To me, that sounds like if you express any faith at all in any religion, there is no chance I'm going to vote for you. Yeah, and... and we asked a number of the questions. It was interesting because in this campaign, of course, both Andrew Scheer and, um, and Jagmeet Singh, you know, there, there was a fair degree of coverage of their religious points of view along the way. It was interesting, about 70% were aware of the coverage, and yet they reacted very differently to Mr. Singh as opposed to Mr. Scheer. Now, you know, there, there are a number of, of qualified, you know, for those who followed the campaign, um, I'm non. I'm, you know, I work for a nonpartisan organization, and we don't want to wade into the particulars of, of partisan politics. But I think, by any objective standard, most people would say that some of this was of their own making, of, of Mr. Shear's own making, and that he didn't necessarily handle some of the questions particularly well. Um, and and you know, maybe maybe it was his handling of the issues that became an issue as much as his his Catholic identity itself. Yet you, you can't help but step back and take a look at the fact that there is a, a group of Canadians that basically said, if you are devout in religion, I don't care what your stand is on the issues, I'm not prepared to even consider voting for you. And yet at the same time, a visible minority, Jagmeet Singh, whose turban is a symbol of his religion, it's not just a symbol of his uh, country of origin, it is a symbol of his religion, uh, that was seen as something positive to a lot of people, that, that he was seen very positively for his religion being part of this. Now, it's, it's interesting. You know, you said it was a bit of a surprise in terms of the election. I don't think it was a total surprise in that, particularly the parties of the left over the last number of years, and the Liberals probably have 
have been the most um, you know most guilty of this have been quite prepared to use social issues as a wedge issue trying to drive you, you know ironically when abortion or same-sex marriage is raised it's usually raised by 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 the liberals um, as as a, as a weapon against their opposition as opposed to putting something forward that certainly has been you know sort of since the Stephen Harper scary agenda elections uh, that certainly has been a consistent theme uh, where, where that's where, where that's where the debate um, seems to come from but okay so if those are the two hot button issues and I agree with you on that and we certainly saw that with mr. Shear does that not suggest that there isn't really a place in Canadian politics for those who would hold views opposing those it it certainly, um, you know, with a subset of the population, now it's less than 30%. When you parse the numbers, you know, where we're able to look at these people in terms of where they came from, who they ended up voting for, one might argue that that 30% of the population probably was never accessible to Mr. Shear in the first place. Um, these were not people who really were considering voting conservative. Um, you know, before the election. So this just became another excuse not to vote conservative. The one place that really hurt Mr. Scheer would have been in Quebec, uh, certainly among um, among those who ended up voting for the bloc. Um, you know, those were those were a good number of voters that conservatives were hoping would come into their camp. Uh, that certainly is is an area in which they're um, you know, there, there was a very strong anti-religious sentiment. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Ray Pennings of Cardus about religion and politics. Angus Reid came out with a poll last week. Fascinating poll about the role or the view that people have of candidates in elections who have religious views. And it was one of those polls that you look at and there are certain things that you say, okay, that kind of makes sense. And there's other things that make absolutely no sense because they seem so contradictory. And Ray, one of those things that really struck me is there is, across Canada, there seems to be, if not universal, strong sentiment against Bill 21 in Quebec, which bans public employees from wearing religious symbols. So, in other words, religion in public life, religion on view in public life. And yet many people are also saying, but I don't want religion in public life. It seems like a contrary opinion. There are lots of um, contradictions inherent in all of this. And I think, you know, the the very fact, as we noticed at the outset, when you've got 62% saying yes to freedom of religion, but then all these things that seem to contradict it in practice, one wonders whether or not we as a society are losing a literacy in terms of what what freedom actually means in that regard. Um, you know, the, the the notion, you know, whether it, whether it's the dress, um, whether it's, you know, some of the freedom of conscience issues, uh, the, the tie between religion and conscience is, is there. And it, I, I think, you know, what we what we are experiencing is a a generation of Canadians who perhaps has not had experience, um, you know, they're not as religious in terms of having been raised in a religious setting and having had a context in terms of what fundamental frameworks are. But it sounds uh, like they're, it, rather than just being, uh, um, not, when I say agnostic, I don't mean religiously, I mean politically, rather than being agnostic towards religion, many of them are being quite averse to the idea of religion. So whether they've been exposed or not, there's something in the background that is making them quite anti that. And, and, and 
we have been doing polling with Angus Reid over the last three years. And what's interesting is when you ask about the good that religion does. So, you know, social services. Can you imagine social services in Hamilton without the role of Salvation Army and some of the other faith-based organizations? Um, You know, dealing with the homeless. Adoption agencies. You know, St. Joseph's Hospital in Hamilton. Um, You know, in addition to the money they receive from, from the government along the way, most religious hospitals have significant resources raised through charitable funds that focus, which are part of our healthcare system. 50% of people born outside of Canada have received either a job, a place to live, or other material help from a religious organization when they came to this country. Our infrastructure would fall apart if it was not the role of religious and religious institutions. And yet, somehow we think we can have the good of religion. You know, I would argue you can't have the good of religion, and in fact, you can't have tolerance without appreciating the positive role of religion and religious society. And it seems to me that a lot of people are, are illiterate about those, those sorts of connections. But what, where this really now gets interesting, and we'll go back to Jugmeet Singh for a second, is that the, the numbers in this poll seem to show that people weren't against religion per se, because his numbers were very high and his religion uh, played very well for him. Mm-hmm. It was certain religion that people were really opposed to. And, and, we will come out with some further polling um, in, in, in a few days that we're still parsing some of the numbers. But it, it is quite interesting when you ask people in terms of different religions, are they a benefit or are they damaging to society? There are certain religions that are very negative and there are others that are relatively positive. Which are? Well, the, the negative is certainly Islam, um, Catholics, and, and Evangelicals are the three that will get you the highest negatives. Um along the way, whereas many of the other religions are either a little more neutral or positive. It's, um, it, it was an interesting one. I mean, again, it, I, the fact that Andrew Shear got questioned heavily about his religion, I don't know that Jugmeet Singh did, although his was very much on display. No one was hiding that. Uh, Justin Trudeau's religion, really not an issue in this election at all, though he says that he's Catholic. It, it, it's a really interesting one about where people's attention goes with this and one. Sorry, go ahead. It's, it's interesting. Elizabeth May was asked on a uh, on a uh, major uh, political interview um, who her closest friend was, and she replied, "Jesus Christ." And immediately, I, if you saw the television clip of that, immediately she sort of put her hand to her mouth with some gas. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. And you know, to me, that is very telling when a political leader. Is, is given a candid answer, and, you know, Elizabeth May is a well-known person of faith, and really has to censor themselves to say, okay, we're not allowed, I'm not allowed to be myself in public life. Could you imagine if, if someone, you know, said it was asked about, you know, something and volunteered their, you know, their sexual orientations? I'm not allowed to say that, or said something about which country they came. Oh, I'm not allowed to talk about that. I think there's something fundamentally unhealthy when we in a society are not allowed to be open and transparent. If we, and religion, as I say, is a fundamental charter value. Arguably, it's the first value, um, you know, historically, and lots of lots of arguments in terms of where our, you know, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights and our charter and the various rights um, documents came from. And certainly the freedom of religion has been fundamental. And to have a significant segment of the population 
basically say, and, and my guess is, you've got to remember, people are responding to a poll here. My guess is they're not, you know, they're not sensing the starkness of what this poll hmm. is saying about... Until they see the numbers. Until they see the numbers, maybe. Sure. sure. Uh, Ray, got to run. Ray, appreciate the time, though. Ray Panning, co-founder and executive vice president of Cardus. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Scott. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting one, for sure, because these are things that matter greatly to people and are also as you see at the other end of the spectrum, repulsive to some people, according to this. That's the number, the, the word repulse. Interesting, interesting one. And it's not going away because this is a topic that will be going for elections forever. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Happy to have this guy here. We don't get him here all that often because he now lives a little ways down the road. So, you know, we got to pick our spots. For now. For now. Well, for now. Yeah, real. A guy who was a uh, a Venier Cup champion, a Grey Cup champion many times over, a general manager of a Grey Cup winning team, guy who ran the World Cycling Championship, a guy who was athletic director at Brock University, uh, the star, I'll say the star of Amazing Race Canada. Well, yeah. Uh, and the father of a, a two or two or three-time Olympian, three-time Olympian, three-time Olympian. That would be Jesse Lums, and his name is Neil Lums. And thanks for coming in. And thanks for reading it like I wrote it out to you. You know that trench thing? I th- I believe uh, I was in it. It's, it's actually a bunker in Scotland, uh, on a golf course. That's absolutely true. Yes. It, it, so the the ocean is Scotland. Yes. yes. If you call it, say it's the Scottish <laughs> Ocean. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll it's the Black Sea. We'll it, test okay, you for math. And uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, that is your question this evening. Uh, thanks for coming in. Appreciate you doing this. Uh, this is great. Because, um, as I say, I was I, I saw an ad the other day for Amazing Race Canada taking new I applications. I, and I'm always thinking, you know, I should put my name in, even though there's no chance I'd be selected. And I don't know who I would do it with. But well, it's look, it just looks like so much fun. Well, you, yeah, that's what it is. Um, it, you know, it is a Ben, ph- ben has just Ben it, has just volunteered. To be it my is partner. a phenomenal experience. And, and thank you for connecting with uh, Kristen and I. After the race, and we were in Halifax at the time, um, visiting some relatives. I think is what it was, and I, you know, I appreciate that support uh, with the occasional laugh in there uh, by you, knowing how much it almost killed us, or, or certainly killed me. I, you know, what I was thinking about doing it again with a with a very good friend. Uh, I can't do it this year because I'm going to be away, but I'm still thinking that why not take another shot at it and try to get in the top two or three this time. Um, it, it, you know, Scott, it, it is a, an awful lot of fun. It's a real test physically and more mentally than physically. Um, and it will, uh, it's an experience of a lifetime. Honest, like, I'm so happy I did it. I'm so happy I did it with Kristen, my daughter. Um, I keep wanting Jesse to get, to get in, you know, like, I'd love to see, it's yeah. great to see how they handle these things. I, I can't remember if the uh, applications have closed. If they haven't closed, they're closing soon. in the next day or soon. so. Like yeah. really, really soon I saw the ad. But I, I would be all good. I said this before. I would be all good <laughs> with doing it. I've said this with Survivor. I could do Survivor easily. I, now, I didn't say I would win Survivor easily because the social stuff would just screw me up entirely. But I could eat bugs and I could survive without food. I would be fine with Amazing Race until I had to jump off a bungee jump or something. Well, then you're like, not fine with Amazing People that have gone on Survivor and then gone on to the Amazing Race think Amazing Race in the U.S. Uh, and I think Canada is tougher in the U.S. They say it's, it's much more difficult than Survivor. Way more. Oh, I would say so. Stressful. Survivor, you're sitting. Well, it's it's totally different. One of them, you're oh, sitting absolutely. in. You're socially trying to work how you work people. One is just physically trying to beat them. And, yeah. and physically, it's way harder. 
Yeah, and there is a a social piece to it, but it's it's an indirect piece. Speaking of social pieces, thank you for the segue. That was a terrific segue. Uh, We have been hearing for days now since the whole situation in Calgary blew up with Bill Peters, the coach of the Calgary Flames, based on the comments that that he made. I won't even say allegedly made because he seems to have acknowledged this now. Yes. uh, From Akeem Alou that Bill Peters, the coach, when he was on another team in the farm system, used a racially derogatory term. Bill Peters is now out. And this has now started online a series, a, a tumbling series of other players accusing other coaches uh, of improper behavior and things. Not, not racial behavior mm-hmm. per se, not the same, but being bullies or being this or being that. And I'm, I, I'm fascinated by this because I'm, I'm looking at this now wondering where this goes. And to the point of we have had in traditionally in sports, you have had coaches who are players, coaches who are, you know, pat on the mm-hmm. back kind of guys. And we've had guys that, are, that roar and get in your face. And Mike Babcock, for example, are we seeing the end of that? Like are, it, with what's happening here, is that guy who could sometimes motivate by intimidation and by force, is that now done in sports? Because if he does, some player is going to come out and say, that guy came in the room and he was just, you know, abusing us. You know, it's a it's it's a question that I've talked about with friends, and it's been uh, certainly, uh, you know, on social media. Every, everyone on social media has an opinion, right? Probably ninety five percent of those people, if not a lot higher, have never been in a, a locker room or a dressing room, have never played a sport at the high level, and understand the intensity that goes along with that, which includes the the lifestyle within the team as far as practice time and travel and you got to be here at certain times. I mean, it's the accountability factor is really high. And I think um, there's a couple of things that come into play on this. If you're looking on the amateur side and recruiting for university sport, youth sport athletes, I think recruiting is now more difficult. I think you have to take a harder look at the dynamic of where this young male or female athlete is coming from, not only their family, but where did they play? Was it rep? Was it high school? Um, Those sorts of things are all going to count now because I think it will determine and affect the coach with respect to how he should manage and handle things and handle individuals. The best coaches I've been around, and I'd like to think I'm this way as well, is and, you know, to me, hockey, basketball, all sports are pretty easy when it gets, when it comes to you only have 15, 18 players to get to know, like to really know what what turns their crank, what gets under their skin, what motivates them, what what are the touch points to get them fired up. And sport at, at a competitive level, some would say rep upwards, but I'll talk about university and pro, it's hard. If you want to be good and you want to win, it's hard to do. And part of that definition of hard is, not only the sacrifice you make as a student of, you know, the, the training and going to academically keeping your marks up, which is so difficult, and these young people are doing such a, a great job at it, but it's, it's how you, you take criticism or coaching. And I was told a long time ago that never take a coach's criticism personally. That, and I've been climbed on as most football players that I know. What was the worst you ever got? Keeping it Verbally? Clean. Yeah. Oh, uh, in, front, in front of your teammates? Oh, yeah. Well, oh, absolutely. Like you shouldn't even be here. Why are you here? And that was in my rookie season. And of course, that and was how part did you of it. react? Well, I would say, well, in my to myself, I'd go. I'd feel not great about it, 
But then I'd say, oh, yeah, well, I'll prove you wrong. I'll show you. You think that? And you know there's a head game going on here. They're always trying to fire you up, and co- different coaches have different ways to do it. All right, were you a guy who was one of those people who reacted better when you were patted on the back or one of those guys who needed to be kicked in the pants to get going? Because there are two different types of people. Well, no, to me, it was go- to me it was about goals, goal-oriented. And I, was, I have been so lucky uh, on a lot of fronts. Great family, great mom and dad, great sister, great support system all the way through. I've had, for the most part, really good coaches. Uh, and I, would buy, I bought into how they looked at developing either me and or the team to get to the end result. And again, it, you know, I remember Northern Secondary School, uh, we won a football game. We went out the, for our next practice, which may have been Monday. Coach wasn't happy. And I don't know if anyone understands the term gasser. Mm-hmm. Well, gassers for us were standing on the sideline. You sprint across the other side and sprint back. And you did it in position. So it would be backs, receivers, quarterbacks, both linemen, defensive backs. Now, remember, we won the game. And it got to the point where I looked around and I thought, this is I won't say what I thought. Crazy. So I faked passing out and went down on a knee. And I said, one, one of the guys says, say, tell, tell, yell at me so that I'm, you know, I'm passing out. Brought the coaches over, brought everyone over. The coach said, well, that's enough. We'll head in. To me, he was way out of line. It, was, it could have been nowadays abusive, but it was more about making a point. No one thought anything other than that. And next day we show up for practice and away we go. It didn't hang with anybody. I don't. But that's exactly what I'm saying. So now you get a hockey coach, let's say, go back to hockey for a second, or a football coach, but mm-hmm. you, you play a game, you go out there, and the guy makes you do the bag skate. Mm-hmm. There are going to be, it's, I'm guessing the way this is lining up, there are going to be those who say that's, that's almost abusive. That that's he inappropriate. Would do that. That's inappropriate, that he, he would make them go that hard. And I'm looking saying, well, wait a second, where is that line then? between a coach being able to motivate using whatever tools. Right. And if you know what, and if the general manager feels he's out of line, abusive-wise, then you get rid of the guy. Well, but, I think, but, I, but it comes back to that four-letter word, hard. To, to do these things, is going to be hard. And if you, if you aren't willing to accept some responsibility to, to, to do more and understand it takes more to be good and to be great and to win, then maybe you should find another sport. Because I think it's part of the maturation process of getting to, uh, I would call, you know, rep sports, it's elite at that age level. You sports in college in the state, that's elite. Pro, it's elite. And if you're, you aspire to do that, then you have, to be, you have to understand and be willing to take on that responsibility and not take things personally. What about mind games? If a coach plays mind games and makes you feel badly about yourself to try and motivate you, is that, is that cool now? I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think back and I've had, I have the benefit of a lot of years. I don't know how you're going to play a mind game with me. Honestly, I, I just don't remember. As a matter of fact, the mind games I remember the most was when we were in Edmonton and we'd be watching game video. And we were a pretty good team in Edmonton. And Joe Fergilly was our offensive coordinator. And we all be in the, the, video, uh, the video and we would go, you know, it's over. We watched for 15 minutes. Joe would flick the uh, switch off, some, say to somebody, turn on the lights. And he'd turn to all of us and say, okay, do you guys have it? Is everyone clear on what we're going to do? We'd say, yeah, of course. And he'd say, good, because if you don't, you'll pay. And we knew from that simply, we better know our stuff. And if we, if we felt at all questionable on what we were going to, to do at that practice on the ready list, then we would say, no, we need to watch some more. Or we'd go watch it on our own. But we were challenged. Being challenged and pushed is very different than being harassed and abused. 
Now, okay, what is, so, that, what is that line, Scott? What, yeah, that, what is the line? That was what I was going to say. Yeah, and, and I think the line now becomes from a coach's responsibility, and I, and I noticed this uh, certainly at Brock, and we have some great coaches there, that you are dealing with individuals. It is a team, but there are individuals. Marty Calder, one of the best, maybe the best, well, it is the best uh, wrestling program in the country, as good as probably any anywhere. He and his coaches are as good as anywhere. He pushes those young people hard. As a matter to a point where other coaches would send their their players in the offseason to go work out with Marty. So you want to see how tough it is? You go work out with them for one day. And they all come back and be thankful they're just playing hockey. But they all had the, the right mindset. I, I didn't see that in a lot of our young athletes. I There wasn't a... I won't say it a softness because that's not fair, but it's it's a my it's all about your mindset, and I think it's tougher to find young athletes or athletes now that aren't blinded by the dough and say, "Hey, you're paying me six hundred six million bucks. You can't say that to me." Oh yeah, I can, because that's how we do things here. I think if an athlete understands that and it's not personal, then I think they accept it. Or you got the wrong athlete and you sign the wrong guy. Because, I, I mean, look, I don't think anybody in 2019 is confused by the fact that you can't use the N-word. Oh. I, I don't think there should be anybody who doesn't understand that. I would hope there wouldn't be. Well, 20 years ago, you should. I mean. Right. I agree. 100%. 25, probably. So, yeah. So if you or say ever, that. frankly. But we're not. We're not well, I, I would agree. But back many, many, many years ago, that was common speak. It doesn't make it right. But to me, it in some ways. You know, I'm, t- I'm not talking about 20 years ago. I'm saying 50, 60, 70, mm-hmm. 80 years ago. It mitigates to me a little bit if that was common, common speak. It, it doesn't, as I say, it doesn't make it right. It's, it's taking down statues now of Sir John A. Macdonald because of stuff that happened. We're talking about different times mm-hmm. and different sensibilities. It doesn't excuse it, but it doesn't. I don't think we can hold people to the exact same standards that we have in place today because times are different. Well, okay, so let me ask you a question. And I don't think people understand, especially at the pro level, of what goes on uh, in conversations on the field or on the ice. They have no clue of what's go- what goes on and what's how, how rough is it? Well, it, it, it's, it's, it's certainly abusive at times. I mean, the game in, in some ways, football, hockey, because of the physicalness of it. But... It, but you hear these kind of words, not all the time, but it's not uncommon. I've heard them, I heard them when I played, uh, certainly not f- directed at me. But um, so was that okay? Or when, or when are we now going to have a player on the ice or on the football field? Well, it almost came up in the, the whole Cleveland Brown, Pittsburgh Steelers, mm-hmm. right? Um, and but it came up four or five days after, and you wonder, okay, so how legit is that? Because if my guess is, if the, that the N word had been used to that player, it would have been out like within an hour. Because I would have, if it was me, I would have stood in front of the media and say, wait a second, I should not have swung the helmet. But but the reason I did yep. is because he called me this five days later, and not sure if it's an excuse or not, but let's put that aside. But you ask players, it's it happens all the time. So when's a player going to say that player was abusive to me? On the field, when is that? Is that well? Referees be the next step? are supposed are allowed to call it now. Referees can throw a flag if they hear those words and kick a guy out of the game. Buddy, when you're down on the ground or you're close to somebody and you're cheek to cheek in helmets or in a well, corner can't against the glass, it. you can't hear anything. Uh, I promise you, you can't hear. It. Okay, so leaving aside that word, because again, we we understand that we're in a totally different realm here. There's a few words like that that you just can't you can't say anymore. 
But we know that, for example, Michael Jordan was, we're told, a world-class chirper who would just say stuff that was so mean and so harsh and so biting and so digging to his opponents. Is that okay now? If it if it's something that goes after a person, you're not using those words, but if it goes after someone and who they are or their weakness or something, is that okay? Or is that stuff not allowed now in sports? Well, that that's the question. I mean, we focus this around one specific word. But there are, are other racial slurs. I'm not even there. talking racial necessarily. No, just or, or, or slurs against from race to religion to who your folks are to your wife and who you're dating and who you used to be dating and I'm dating her now. Like all those sorts of things. That's always going to happen. But it happens in close quarters because you can't prove it. So I don't think it, that's ever going to change. But the, the question is because of what happened two weeks ago in Cleveland, is it now going to start to happen more often? I think not. Because I think that there is a combative mentality that when you're on the green spot or you're on the ice, uh, certainly at that level of competition, uh, it goes without saying. And there's a little bit of a quid pro quo going on that if keep your keep your head up, or I'll blow your knee out. You said so, well, you right? said a few moments ago that you had a coach. Was it Hugh Campbell once upon a time who said you don't belong here? No. Okay, but but a coach came in. It was and my freshman, my rookie year in Toronto. Okay. Uh, you said you don't belong here. So now it sounds not completely dissimilar to, um, uh, let's say Mitch Marner mm-hmm. being told as a rookie, you've got to do this thing. Yes. And that has been a huge thing. Mike Babcock is now under fire for doing these things, saying stuff to a rookie. So what happens if a coach walks into a dressing room now, after all this has happened and just launches into his team and Neil Lumsden is sitting there. And he goes, and you are an absolute joke of a player. You don't belong here. You're a wimpy whatever. Is is that allowed now, or is that suddenly now abusive towards that player? I, you see, I would never, as a coach and having coached, I would never have said it that way. I would have, I would have approached and attacked his play on the ice and, and have nothing personal, nothing personal okay, in my I comment. Choose, but okay, but, but, say, but, but that's, just part of play the profe- that's part of coaching. Prof- professional adjustment and coaching on what you're doing and how you are doing it should always be allowed. But if I'm now going after you personally, that you're a big suck for not going into the corners versus saying, you've got to be more aggressive in the corners and keep your feet moving and make contact. If you don't, you're probably not going to be in this team much longer. There's a big difference in interpretation. But calling someone a big suck has been probably totally okay for ever. Oh, if someone, honestly, is that, is that now Scott, not- if somebody gets, uh, gets their knickers in the knot because you're called a big suck, like really, come on. I mean, let, let us not go so far one way that we become s- so soft emotionally that we can't, someone can't call us something and we don't take it personally. I'm going to go tell, you called me a suck. I'm going to go, I'm a pro hockey player, but I'm just going to cop my mom. Like, come on. That's not, in to me now or back then, if you can't handle that, you probably shouldn't be there frankly, and I would think most of them aren't. Interesting, it was more, the Marner situation was more of a, he he goaded him into making a list and then embarrassed him in front of his players. That, to me, that's inappropriate. Like, totally inappropriate. If you want to build Mitch Marner up as a young player, throw him under the bus in front of 18 other guys? That's the way you do it? Personally, not a chance. Not a chance. Now, there's other ways to do it. There's other ways to, to accomplish things. I just think now we have to be smarter as coaches. 
We have to be, and I don't want to say more sensitive because I don't think that's the point. I think we have to be smarter and care more about these athletes and how we're going to make them better. I look at a bunch of football coaches on the sideline who when a player comes off, he gets in the guy's face and gives it to him. And I look at that and I think, well, football hasn't had this same reckoning that hockey is going through yet, I don't think. But there are hockey coaches that I look at and I go, it's, it, it, with the way things are going, it is just a matter of time till some of these old school quote, quote guys are now in front of the microphones trying to explain something that they've been doing forever as lauded coaches for their coaching. And suddenly now that same thing they're saying, yeah, I don't. Okay. Let me take it. A, unless you got a, no, we got, we got one minute. Okay. Think about this and then we'll come back and talk about it. You're talking about coaches doing this. Um, there's a quarterback in the NFL considered the greatest of all time. Have you ever seen him come off the field or on the field, but certainly off the field, get his helmet off, get in people's faces and rip them? Yes, you have. A couple times. Sure, and he's been doing it for years. So what's going to happen with that scenario? Not the coach doing it. One of the leaders of the team, one of the greatest players to play, the guy who leads your team both on the field and around the field, and he's ripping you a new one. You know when that's going to come up? 20 years from now, someone's going to say something <laughs> and there's going to be stories. Honestly, th- and that, that's when these things sometimes will happen is that you'll say, oh, you know, he said this to me. I've had coaches. I mean, I can't begin to make a list of guys that have ripped into me over the years. You know, if I went, well, some of them aren't even around anymore, so that doesn't help. But, you know, I, just move on. I move, just move on. I, honestly, it probably makes you better in the long run. At least it did me because it made me want to be better. And why I'll, and it was the typical, show. I'll show you. You really think so? In the league where there were no Canadian running backs when I came out of university, none. And I was moved to another position. Not given a chance to at a, at a running back spot until the regular training camp. I was a tight end and slot back. Is that fair? Of course it's not fair. It was, you were abused. <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The TV in the studio is on. It's the Sabres playing against the New Jersey Devils. It's already 3-0 Buffalo. New Jersey's awful this year. They're just terrible. It's only 12 minutes into the game, 11 minutes into the game. And Neil made the comment that, boy, is this the Sabres' first game back since the Leaf back-to-back? And it sure seems like they play a lot of hockey. Well, interesting you raise that because the NBA has talked about making massive schedule changes. I mean, changing entirely how basketball is done. Right now, the NBA and the NHL are, as everyone knows, basically the same. They're talking about shortening the season, having a break in the middle of the season to have a mid-season tournament, and the winner would get draft picks or something else like that, maybe a financial bonus, although if you're making $40 million a year, how much more can they give you that is going to motivate you to keep playing? But anyway. Yeah. Would you, I mean, regardless, would you be open to saying, you know what? Yeah, the schedule, it's a long 80-game season. Who cares about games 50 through 70 or 40 through 60 or whatever? Sure, change it up. Do something different. No, I think it's hokey. I think it's like you're trying to make it into a semi-streetball kind of format and and with that competition in the middle of that tournament in the middle. I mean, I think... It's kind of a premier, it's kind of a soccer thing almost, too, to have the champion. It is like a soccer thing, and uh, that's a great point, and... I've heard that reference before. I, I think it's just a bunch of smoke. I, you know, first off, maybe they should run this all by the Players Association first and before they start putting things out there because the Players Association holds the, probably the biggest hammer in this whole thing, whether it changes or doesn't change. And then uh, 
you know, are there too many? Yeah, I mean, I made the comment in this commercial that I think it's too much hockey. I know why. I know the economics. I'm not. Uh, I get all that, but I feel uh, these guys carry quite a load. Um, They'll have, shorten have, it to sixty games and make the tickets twelve hundred dollars at the Scotiabank Place instead of whatever they are now. Like just drive the prices up all over the place. Oh yeah. Well, we'll do it like they do it. It's not Texas Stadium anymore, but whatever that massive stadium in, in Dallas that the Cowboys play, that they've got seat licenses that are only last for 10 years, by the way. They're not in perpetuity. Um, the seat prices are crazy. You got to give blood to park plus a $100 bill. You know, all those sorts of things. And and the comment was made to me, well, you know, well, how about the, the fans? I mean, not every fan can afford $250 to sit up in row 75. Uh, where's the, where is the game going? Uh, is it all corporate now? Well, yeah. Well, but 105,000 or whatever is crazy it is. 20,000 for a basketball and 105 for I mean it's easier to fill the basketball 38 times a year for whatever it is. Um I I mean I think that kind of stuff is hokey. I think it's uh I think players are probably rolling their eyes. I think the load management though it didn't seem to be a big deal when Kawhi was here in Toronto and it was managed very well with respect to how the, what the outcome was. And the outcome typically drives future conversation around well, it might, hey, they did it with Kawhi. Maybe it can work with everybody. Well, you're never going to see LeBron James, or you never would have seen Larry Bird or Michael Jordan or any of the other greats say, yeah, I'll sit it out. And see, let, let me stop there for a sec, because I think you're right on to it. I think this concern comes from Kawhi Leonard, it, largely, that you now have guys, superstars, who are their teams are saying, your sports science says, we're not playing you 80 games or 82 games. Too much on your body. You can play 60. You can play 55, and then the league is looking at this going, oh, crap, what happens if all of our stars start sitting out 20 or 25 games a year? How do we sell tickets for that? The answer, fewer games. Right. And so, but you're right. I mean, how many load management games did Michael Jordan have? Well, none. I mean, I, I, I never really heard of load management until Kawhi Leonard. Well, because they made it up for that. Right. So, and did he have it before he got to the Raptors? Nope. And and so his point was he was injured in San Antonio and therefore load management was to keep and him healthy. And he was healthy. coming off and he was getting healthy. And that was one of the selling points. And they did it brilliantly, by the way, because uh, they had a pretty good basketball team anyways. Uh, Which is what the NBA hated, that it worked. Yes. Because if it hadn't worked, if the Raptors had gone out in the first round, load management looks stupid. Who? Why are we doing this? Well, load management has been in, a, uh, it certainly has been in football for a long time. Soon as the spread get, or as soon as the points get uh, to a certain point, some teams believe that it's now time to get the second guys in for two reasons: one, save your starter; two, let the the second and the third levels get some experience. Mm-hmm. So if we ever have to call on them, they know what the heck they're doing out there under pressure uh, against the big league players. So, and I, we have seen it in baseball. There's been load management really come into play in baseball for pitchers. That is, you know, oh, yeah. way more than it ever used to be. Handled then, differently. Five uh, innings now instead of, you yeah, still go every fifth pitch day. Pitch count, but, five innings. Right. Yeah. So uh, a lot of these things, I, I mean, I can see it from a baseball perspective, given velocity, the torque on the shoulder and all those sorts of things. But um, I, I, don't, I don't see, back to your original point, I don't see that schedule changing a bit. I, there's no way they're going to jeopardize revenue because ultimately that becomes the player's paychecks. You know, if someone's paying me 40 million bucks a year, uh, you can play my butt as much as you want because I'm going to love it and I'm going to want to win. And so are the rest of the guys. And I think that's what made Golden State so good uh, for so many years. Great players, the guys that love to play. And a load management never would have worked there. 
Uh, now, they didn't win last year, but they won a few times before that. See, I think there's got to be a different thing you can do. I mean, look, maybe this would work. Maybe fans would love it. I don't know. I mean, what I've heard so far sounds, I'm kind of with you. i kind of like, okay, it sounds a little weird how you're going to do it. But to me, the biggest problem that all these leagues have now is tanking. That mm. you've got teams that are, so so do something that prevents teams from tanking. Put penalties in. If you finish last overall, you don't get the first round draft pick. You get no first round draft pick. Find out you got to. I mean, do something that will or force all the teams that are in who who miss the playoffs to play a tournament separate that would be for draft picks. Now that's an interesting concept. To me, that would fly. I think that'd be now great you're fun. fighting. Now you're playing to see who's going to get the first overall pick. And because here's the thing, I really believe that a bunch of the teams in hockey and in the NBA are not nearly as bad as their numbers suggest. They are trying, as everyone knows, to lose to get a better traffic. You tell you tell New Jersey now. New Jersey, they're a bad team. But if you were to say that first round pick or that first overall pick, you're not going to get it. You got to win this tournament to get it. Suddenly, uh, you know, I, I think you may see more from some of these players. Well, and you know, the the one I mean, just think about this. We were talking, and uh, my old my good friend Ron Foxcroft's thought process about how officials at every game have people there uh, co- or. Uh, monitoring mm-hmm. the officials on the court. So they're, how they're doing, they put a report in. If, if there's a thought of a team tanking, no matter what the sport, a special ops team should be quietly sent out to watch games that said team's playing, look at their roster, look how their roster's being played, and make an assessment that comes back to the league, then they call the ownership in and say, listen, you're not playing your best players. Don't tell me you're not trying to. I know you're not saying. Oh, we're but he's tank. got a pulled hamstring. Oh, he's got a. Yes, but they become now. They know now they're onto them, and they've got a. You know, people thought, well, how you know how does Miami come back and win, and beat Philly on the weekend? Everyone thought that that's an impossibility. Well, don't tell that to Fitzpatrick, mm-hmm. the quarterback, and some of the other guys that are playing. To me, that if I'm their coach, I feel really good about that, because I I haven't got a bunch of guys that are stiffs. They're, you know, licking the stamp, putting it on and mailing it in. And that, to me, is important, especially when the dollars that are getting paid. The other like, thing, well, the other thing that that having something at the end of the year, a tournament, if you're going to do a tournament with the teams, say, that aren't in the playoffs, they're not going to be dumping all their players. Right. So it, it, it prevents teams. I mean, some people love the trade deadline when teams can load up because everyone's dumping guys. You may still dump a player who's going into his free agency time. But you're not going to dump them just because you want to get rid of the guy. Well, and, and think about win. this. Well, and, fi- and now since we're talking about these, how do you take the buddy factor f- out of basketball now, especially in basketball, that, you know, they, they get together in their offseason. They're coming, becoming free agents. They choose they're their talking team. and say, yeah, let's, uh, you know, we're, we're creating our own team here. Uh, think about coming to see us. Yeah, we can, you know, I'll talk to the coach. I mean, if you don't think that happens, you're not. Oh, no, of course it does. 100% it does. And, and it's interesting that that's not considered... Tampering, and yet if a general manager does it, oh, I know, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah it's it's. Anyway, I, I I found this thing. I mean, Adam Silver, the the commissioner of the NBA, really wants to do something different with the schedule, and I guess this is his way to. I like your idea. Make his mark At the end on, of the well, season. I, it just I'm with you. It sounds a little goofy to do it in the middle of the year to take oh. a stop. And now maybe maybe what that does is that makes the middle of the season when it's the dog days and nobody's really wanting to get out there and do it. Maybe that makes those middle ten games meaningful, so you don't have the dog days. 
I don't know. I mean, look, maybe it could work. I'm sure there are smart people in the NBA with millions and billions of dollars in the line who have thought through this. Well, I'll tell you a very quick story. Uh, years ago, when my daughter Kristen was playing basketball in high school, one of the things she wanted to do was go to a Raptors game. She met a couple of Raptors in a school visit. It was great. So I said, absolutely. We went down. And, it, you know, it's, a great, it's great to go to a Raptors game. The energy is outstanding. So this is it's quite a while ago now. Not that she's old. I want to make that clear. Um, she turned to me at halftime and said, uh, when are they going to start working? I said, what do you mean? They are walking up and down the court. You know, there's one-on-ones, there's doubles, dribbles, there's all, when are they going to start pushing? I said, last three minutes. So there's a, you know, a, a fairly neutral eye looking. And, and honestly, you watch some of the games now. Listen, load management may be important for some, but no one's killing themselves every game. There's a lot of walking going on. Well, there's on. a few guys. And, and well, uh, we got to go to break. There's a, few. There's, there's, there's a bunch of guys who are, I mean, I look at Pascal Siakam and I think, you know, that guy signed a big contract. He's still working for it. Mm-hmm. He's working for it every single night. Absolutely. And, you know, good for him. I mean, good for him and good for some of the other guys. It's always amazing to me. We've got to go to break. It's always amazing to me how much harder guys seem to want to work the year before a big deal. <laughs> That's natural. <laughs> not all, not all, not Siakam, not a few others, no. but there's a bunch of guys that if you go back and look, you see an effort level when they're in a free agent year compared to after they've signed it. Yeah. I get that. That's why every athlete, it, every athlete it. should be a free agent after every single year in every sport. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. So the um, the idea just before the break that we make all athletes and all sports free agents every year. I and I and as soon as we went off, I said every two years. All right, so every two years, and It'd be chaos. It would nobody be would chaos. ever know who was on your team. You'd never buy a sweater with your team guy's name oh, on sure your shirt. You would. Would just you? put them in Velcro on the back. <laughs> um, I I think it would be very interesting. Or you're allowed based on the number of players. You're allowed two. Longer term, like four to five years, and the rest have to be two or under. You want guys playing hard all the time? Oh yeah, that's what you do. That it. would do it. There would be no load management. Oh, by the way, we were talking about the <laughs> yeah. uh, the uh, Sabers Jets game. There's now a minute left, and it's five nothing Buffalo in the first against New Jersey. New Jersey's awful. PK Subban is there. Taylor Hall is there. They should. They're that not Quinn, that good. That, it seems like. Well, clearly not. I've I've played in a charity game with you, and the team that we played on might have beaten this (laughs) New Jersey team, and that is not a compliment. Which game was that? Is that where um, Wally Satilney took a slap shot from mid-ice? We were playing the cops, and there was almost a fight broke out? No, that was one where, uh, I I hate to, I won't say who, because I don't want to embarrass the guy, but there was a former Maple Leaf, there were a few of them that were playing. There was one in particular who I walked into the dressing room and he was in the corner smoking a cigarette and I I had grown up watching this guy play and I had no idea who he was. We were playing up in KW. No, I remember that. No, this was no? at uh, DeFasco. Oh. DeFasco Arena. And I, he introduced himself and I looked and I went, come on, you're not that guy. Because I grew up watching and he had looked so rough now. I When I was at the University of Ottawa. And he could still my, play though. My, oh, oh they could, these guys can play all right. Um, make no mistake about it. The University of Ottawa in my, finished my second year. The all-star game at the time against the Grey Cup champions still used to happen. It was taking place in Ottawa. Jeff Avery and I were asked to be ball boys because Jerry Bergeron was our equipment manager or our, our therapist. He was asked for to do that for the all-star team. Great. We're getting things up. We're getting ready to go. 
Um, lots going on. Go to the first half, come back in the second half or for the halftime. I walk around and hand out towels and somebody is sit, a couple people are sitting having a dart in the corner. It was George Reed. <laughs> and I went, and I looked at him thinking, George Reed smokes a same thing, but not only smokes, smokes now yeah. at halftime. Come on, man. What are you doing here? The thing about that game that I remember, so it was a bunch of us and we were hacks and it was against a bunch of mostly Leaf alumni, and they sort of did their thing for the first period or so. It was two periods. And in the second period, about five minutes in, it was like someone said, okay, time. Turned it on. Yeah, and it was Gary Lehman, and it was Rick Natras, and it was uh-huh. Mark Osborne, and yep, a few others. Right. And all of a sudden, it's boom, 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 boom. boom. And th- these are now 50-year-old men, and they... It was it was hopeless. We oh, didn't even touch the puck again. I know it was great to watch. Rick Zez or uh, Peter Zezel was there when he was still thankfully still with us. I mean, just tape to tape to tape to tape to tape. Boom, tape to tape. Fun, to tape. Right? Oh well, fun. I went from five all to like thirteen to five in the span of five off, seconds before we get off the ice. Yeah, yeah to say it, I wasn't there. Yeah, I was. Uh, I had big big plans for that game, but uh, didn't work <laughs> out. <laughs> That was yeah. when I was going to get my contract. Yeah. I was going to get scouted just that game. Just a two-year contract, though. Just a two-year contract as a free agent. Make my money. Uh, Neil Lumsden, thanks for coming in today. Appreciate it. As always, it's great fun. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.